0: had the misfortune last night of watching Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice. I don't know if you've seen it. I, I don't recommend it particularly. But the reason I mention it is to ask whether you know why comic books became popular in the first place. Around the end of the Second World War, there was a great fear. Mankind had developed weapons of war so destructive that whole cities could be laid waste in a moment. We'd become perhaps the least humane... the human race had ever been and people were afraid. And comic books gave expression to a longing for someone, for someone bigger and stronger and better who could save the day. Of course, all the superhumans had to have their faults too. They were all too human in fact. But comic books gave expression to the secular West's longing for a Messiah figure. And in some ways, 2 uh, Samuel is the Bible's comic book. Its central character, David, is the greatest king that Israel ever knew. And certainly, he had the power of a superhuman, not in his muscles, but in his military might, in his wisdom. He was a superhuman character, perhaps one of the greatest men who's ever lived. But David's human faults are such that Second Samuel leaves us longing for great King David's greater son, the true Messiah, Jesus. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're only in the first chapter today. So let me pray as we come to this passage and we'll jump in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we delight in your Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that as we study 2 Samuel this term and as we look at this first chapter together, you would show us again the glory of our Saviour, that we might love him and see him Uh, In all his beauty from a a new angle today. For your name's sake we pray. Amen. Well I wonder if, as Min read, you spotted the surprise in this passage. Uh, Narrative passages uh, generally have one. If you haven't got one in your passage, and your passage isn't big enough. uh, There's always a a turning point, a hinge around which the story turns. I don't know if you noticed the one here in our passage. Look at verse 11 and 12 with me. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan. And if that isn't surprising for you, then that is because you have forgotten what's come before. Uh, 2 Samuel is the second part of a a four-act drama that takes in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. Indeed, in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's 1, 2, 3 and 4 Kings. It's uh, one book that was too big to go on one scroll, and so they divided it up into four equal parts, about four scrolls, and so four books in our Bible. But they are one story, the story of the kings of Israel. And so we come to this at the beginning of the second part and ask the question, why is it that the great general David is out on the southern border of Israel fighting against the Amalekites, a local petty squabble, when uh, the king, Saul, He's on a battlefield at the other end of the country, at the very north of the country, fighting the entire army of the Philistines. This great enemy, this ancestral enemy of his people. Why is David on the southern border, miles away from the battle? And the reason is because Saul has spent uh, so many years trying to kill David. Uh, We see it all in the last half of uh, the first book of Samuel. Uh, That David has fled, Uh, fled first of all to the Philistines. And then when the Philistines were about to go into battle with Saul, David left them and returned to Ziklag, where he had a camp. And he got to Ziklag and found that the Amalekites had raided and taken away all of his, uh, the people and possessions that had been left there. And so he goes after them and defeats them and brings his, uh, his people back. And so uh, 2 Samuel 1 verse 1 follows on from the story of these, these two battles. David uh, fighting the Amalekites and Saul fighting the Philistines in the far north of the country. And uh, we need to know uh, what's going on in 1 Samuel to understand what is so shocking about 2 Samuel chapter 1. If we're going to understand this passage at all, we're going to have to think about it in terms of the story that's already begun. And if you were here uh, a few months ago, we will look through uh, 1 Samuel, so some of this will be familiar to you anyway. Saul is the king of Israel, but his failure to obey God's word, particularly God's word in 1 Samuel 15 to destroy the Amalekites meant that God took the kingdom away from him and gave it to David. He, uh, he said in 1 Samuel 16, Here is my new king, a man after my own heart. And so David has been anointed to be the, the successor to Saul for half of 1 Samuel. And, David, uh, and Saul spent most of that time trying to wipe David off the map, uh, throwing his spear at him, uh, pursuing him with his army, and uh, driving him out of the country. And so why... Given the the 15 chapters that have just gone before, why is it, uh, when all of that has happened, that David is mourning the death of his enemy? That seems strange. And it gets us into our passage this morning. We'll pick up the story where uh, the two battles have just finished, at the end of the previous book. And we're going to look at this chapter to begin with in three scenes. And we'll begin uh, with uh, the story of the battle, verses 1 to 10. Just follow along with me. Uh, Verse 2. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn, dust on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honour. The man never gets named for us. He's just a messenger. But before he even opens his mouth, you can tell that he's bringing bad news. Tearing your clothes, putting dust on your head were, were signs of mourning. And we see that again, don't we, in verse 11, when David does the same thing with all his men. And moreover, this man falls at David's feet. So he's, he's paying honour, deference. Now, maybe that's just because David is the general. But the, as the story unfolds, we realise this man knows that David is to be the next king. Uh, yet, even at this point, David doesn't know what the bad news is, does he? And the man is, after all, an Amalekite. He could be coming from the Philistine camp just as much as he's coming from the Israelite camp, because David, in some ways, has an, a vested interest in both sides, but we find out the man has escaped from the Israelite camp. And that is ominous for us as we, as we move into the story. He expands, doesn't he? Verse 4, David says, what happens? And he says, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Three great tragedies, which encompass the total humiliation of his people. A terrible loss of life. Uh, the loss of territory, the loss of reputation. Uh, But worse, the loss of a king and of his heir, which means uh, political instability. It would be the equivalent of uh, somebody destroying uh, the whole parliament and you'd be left with nobody to govern. And David obviously wants evidence that this isn't a trick or or misinformation. So in verse 5 he says, how do you know? And so the man recounts the story. By chance, he was on Mount Gilboa and Saul was there, leaning on his spear. We find out that's because Saul has been injured, he's uh, expiring. In fact, he tells us Saul's own words, uh, recounting the situation. Verse nine, stand here and stand by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still hanging on, I'm, I'm still alive. And The man tells us, verse six, that uh, the chariots and horsemen are closing in. Saul has no hope of escape. And moreover, he's at death's door, isn't he? Probably in a lot of pain. Probably concerned about how he'd be treated by the Philistines if they got to him first. And this man is an eyewitness then, and he's, he's brought David at the royal symbols, the crown and the amulet from his arm to show you, I was there. I'm telling you the truth. These are, uh, these are the true things. David, Saul is really dead. Moreover, the man says, I killed him, actually. And now I've come to you, David, with the news and, and, and the royal symbol so that you can be the king. I, I've done the right thing. I've, I've made it a swift succession. There's no, no need for a war here. I take over. So in the face of it, the man's done the right thing, hasn't he? He commits assisted suicide. But only when the king is definitely already dying and in a lot of pain. Those who support euthanasia, they'd be really pleased with that, wouldn't they? He's done the right thing. Moreover, he does it on the highest possible authority because the king himself has said, do this. Who's to contradict him? And now he mourns for the king. He's torn his clothes. He's put ashes on his head. And now he's bringing the kingdom to the Lord's anointed. He's found the Messiah and said, here, have the kingdom. He's done all the right things. It seems that this Amalekite was was well enough versed in uh, Israelite life To know that David should be the next king. And so all of that being the case, we might think that David's reaction in verses 11 to 16 is outrageous, isn't it? Before we get to that, let's just go back to the man's story for a moment and corroborate it or otherwise. Just flick back a page to 1 Samuel 31 and verses 4 and 5, where we get the narrator's account. When you have the inspired Bible writer telling us what happened, and then you have somebody giving their own account of it, you can be sure that the narrator has got it right. And we have to ask the question whether, whether the Amalekites' story fits with the narrator's account. And we find that there are some differences. Verse 4, Saul said to his armour bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. See, their stories, they agree to some extent, don't they? Perhaps the Amalekite was there. He saw all of this. He heard what Saul said. But he wasn't the armour bearer, was he? Because the armour bearer was terrified and he would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. It seems that the narrator wants us to know that Saul fell by his own hand. Because his assistant, his his friend, his trusted armour bearer wouldn't do it. He wouldn't kill the king. In fact, Saul dies and the armour bearer kills himself too. He's so attached to the king that his life isn't worth living anymore either. So all that's left then, presumably on the hill at Gilboa, is this Amalekite who's watched this whole scene. And he picks up the the arm ring and and the crown and he runs to David. And as he's running down the whole length of the country to find David he begins to embellish the story. You can imagine him thinking this over. How do I get the most advantage out of bringing this news to David? And so he gets to the king and, and he says, look, Saul turned to me. And I was more faithful to the king than the armour bearer was because I did what the king asked me to do. I was willing to run him through. And he gets to David and brings him the news. David, you're no longer an outsider. You're no longer on the run. You're the king. You're right in the middle of things now. And I, I've served the king. I served Saul, how he asked me to. But of course, I was also serving you, my new king. I was dispatching your enemy and making you the king of the country. Uh, Surely you'll reward a faithful servant who's served you in this way. And so, uh, undoubtedly, what happens next comes as a shock to the Amalekites. He wouldn't have embellished the story in the way that he did if he was uh, was aware that David was going to react like this. And so at the second scene, verses 11 to 16, we have the justice of the king. Here David responds to the news about Saul's death in two ways. Did you notice them? First of all, he tears his clothes, mourns, weeps and fasts for Saul and for Jonathan, for the men who've died. I guess that probably unsettled the Amalekite to some degree, although this is a formal way of doing things. This is how we do things. So maybe he wasn't too disturbed, but he was kind of hoping that David would be rejoicing. You're the king now. After all these years of running, you're finally the king. You should be rejoicing. But no. And then secondly, things take a darker turn, don't they? David turns to the Amalekites and interrogates him about his own role. And no doubt the man begins to wish at this point that he hadn't lied to David. David asks, where are you from? And David knows he's an Amalekite. The man's told him in the story that I'm an Amalekite. That's what he said to Saul. So the question behind the question is more like this, I think. Where do you live? Whose jurisdiction do you fall under? And the man says, well, I'm a foreigner of a Malachite extraction. But the word foreigner there means uh, sojourner. It means he dwells in Israel. He's not a native, but this is his home. Israel is his home. And so effectively, he comes under Israel like, Lord, I guess we know that, don't we? Because he knows that David is the next king. So he's, he's, he's enough uh, of a resident in Israel to know what's happening politically, And that means he comes under the justice of the new king of Israel. So does the king approve of the Amalekites' behaviour? Well, verse 14 tells us, doesn't it? Just look at verse 14 with me. David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? says it again in verse 16, just to make the point emphatic. Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth has testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. The man's crime was to strike down the Lord's anointed one. The word for anointed one there is Messiah. He has struck down God's Messiah. And David says, what right? What right have you got to strike down God's chosen king? the one who holds the highest office in all the world. How dare you? And again, we then consult the context, don't we? Uh, back in uh, the, the, the 20s of, of 1 Samuel, uh, Saul is chasing David all over Israel, and twice David is in a position to strike down Saul. In the cave. And Saul's unaware, as he, as he relieves himself in the cave, that David is right behind him and can run him through. And twice... David refuses to strike down the Messiah of God. He said, I'll wait for God's timing. Remember here, of all the people who had the right to strike down Saul, it's surely the next Messiah, the next anointed one, the one who is destined to be king. He's already been appointed by God. And yet he holds the office of Messiah in such high regard that David will not strike the king even if he's being hunted even if he's being treated as an enemy he will not strike down the king and the Amalekite we suddenly realize has made a catastrophic error in judgment hasn't he and now David's in a position to exercise justice for the king and to show the world I'm not celebrating I'm not happy that Saul's gone he was the Lord's anointed it's a tragic day Moreover, even as we got to the beginning of the story, we we weren't going to be very confident this man was going to get out of it well, were we? If you think about it, if you've been reading through the whole story, you'll remember, again, 1 Samuel 15, Saul was supposed to strike down all of the Amalekites. There was probably none left. And so it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that as he loses the kingdom and as, as it's handed over to David, it's an Amalekite who thrusts the sword. It's ironic that the man he's left alive is the one to finish him off. And it's no coincidence to us, is it, that David's just been fighting who? He's been fighting the Amalekites. And David is the new king. And David is willing to do what Saul was not willing to do. Exercise God's justice against the Amalekites. It is David and not Saul who fulfills God's command from 1 Samuel 15. To bring justice against this man. Symbolically, this man standing for the enemies of God who is willing to strike down the king. David, by contrast, has served Saul faithfully, has treated him as God's Messiah, has steadfastly refused to strike down Saul himself, even though he is the one in a position to do it. Why? Because David understands that the role of the Messiah is a sacred, holy calling. Woe betide any man. woman who dares to lift up their hand against God's king. Before we think about the implications of that, let's just finish uh, telling the story and look at the third scene. In some ways, this is uh, a really important structural point. There are three uh, songs in uh, 1 and 2 Samuel. There's one in 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's song, if you'll remember back to uh, a few months ago, where Hannah sings of her, her expectation of the coming king. And then you have uh, 2 Samuel 22, which is David's uh, song as he's about to pass away, looking forward to the king, uh, looking forward to the fulfilment of Hannah's song in the Messiah, the true Messiah, the great son of David who's to come. And here we have the hinge, the turn from, uh, from a king Saul to the king David. And it's a lament for the death of the king and David here, I think, is teaching the people how to grieve. I guess it's, it's here in the Bible so that in subsequent generations, people could grieve for him and for his children. And it teaches us something. It teaches us how to count the blessings and benefits of the king. Did you notice that? Notice that the song never criticises Saul. Now, Saul certainly did things that were criticising worthy. And notice that the song never really references uh, Saul's faith. Saul's relationship with God, it's not, uh, this is not about a holistic picture of Saul. This is a celebration of the blessings that the king brought to the people. Notice uh, what what we're told, the, the refrain, if you like, the chorus, how the mighty are fallen, verse 19, verse 25, verse 27 how the mighty have fallen. And Saul was certainly a mighty man, verse 22. He was, if you like, he was a superhero character. Think about how he's being described here. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. These were not cowards. These were were mighty warrior men, verse 23. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. Indeed, they were loved and admired in life and not parted in death. A king and his heir. Great men whose death will be the rejoicing of their enemies, verse 20. And great weeping for the daughters of Israel, verse 24. The mighty warrior king brings secure borders. He brings economic prosperity. That, that language of, of gold and of, of precious scarlet for their clothes. These are kingly things. And the people of Israel shared in the king's abundance As he prospered the people. Saul was a good king in some respects. And when Saul is killed, it brings the possibility that all of these blessings will be lost. When the Messiah is gone, the blessings of the Messiah are gone. Even with David as the heir apparent, the loss of the Messiah is a time for mourning. For mourning all of these things that have gone. Well, so much for the story. What does it mean? Why did David have this recorded in the first place? Why is it recorded for us in our scriptures? Well, I think the passage has two functions. Unfortunately, I think the second one, uh, I've I've missed off the the service sheet. But uh, let me tell you, we're going to begin with the vindication of the Messiah. See, how we read this uh, passage about David depends on whether we think of David as the king, as the model Messiah, or David as the model Christian. And we'll do both of those things in a moment. Let's take uh, David as the king first, and the vindication of the Messiah. See, by the time we get to chapter 7, we we get a promise from God that one of David's descendants will be the Messiah. David's not him, but one of his children will be. Yet even at this point, the beginning of his reign, we look at David as the one who's been anointed by God, 1 Samuel 16, to be the king, who we're told has a heart after God's own heart, David is the Messiah. He's the model of the Messiah. And this passage, and particularly the lament, uh, are recorded for the people as a vindication, I think, of who David is. Think about what the story tells us about David. It tells us that his hands are innocent of the blood of the king. He had nothing to do with the death of Saul, and he he brings justice against the man who who did it. He has no interest in celebrating the death of his enemy because he's an honourable king. It shows the swift justice of the king in dealing with those enemies who would seek some advantage by the death of the Messiah. It shows the character of the king in giving honour to Saul, perhaps more honour than Saul was really due. It shows the Messiah who fully carries out the word of God against the Amalekites when Saul refused to do so. So even as, as David is celebrating the kingship of Saul, it's hard to escape the fact that David is... Shaping up to be a better king than Saul ever was. He's the model of the king we want. And as we look through the whole book, one way or another, David is going to point us forward to a king who's even better than David himself. We're looking for another messiah. The comic book longing for a superhero who really can save the day. Uh, One who is swift in his justice. One who is generous and whose rule will never be overcome by death our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the vindication of David that we'll see all the way through this this book. But there is another motif, one that I think is is unique to this passage and one we need to have a little look at. And it is how David teaches us to honour the Messiah. Honour the Messiah. Think about how how we, we have this portrayed to us in three different ways in the passage. First, we see it in the failure of the Amalekite To revere the office of Messiah. See, Saul is not the Messiah, but he's still a small-m Messiah. He's the one on the throne, he's the one in the office. And so he deserves to be revered. He deserves fearful respect. Isn't that what the armour-bearer does in, in 1 Samuel 31? Saul says, strike me down. The man's not afraid of Saul... If you've struck down Saul, if he's dead at your feet, you're not afraid of him. So why is he terrified? He's terrified of God. It's a terrifying thing to strike down God's anointed king. He's rightly terrified of God's justice if he strikes down the king. Much better to die by the side of the king than to strike him down and face God's judgment. Isn't that what David's basically saying? Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Why weren't you afraid? You see, we should hold the office of Messiah in the highest possible regard. Now, of course, today, Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus cannot be killed, never again. He rules forever. He is the indestructible Messiah. And so we're never going to kill him, as the uh, the armour bearer was asked to do, but isn't it so easy for us to have the attitude of the Amalekites? To want Jesus dead because we see some advantage to it for ourselves. Perhaps it's just, it's the attitude of the religious leaders back in, in Mark chapter 12. We'll come to later in our home group year. Come, let us kill the air and all this will be ours. If, if Jesus was just out of the way, I could do things my way. I could take it all for myself. And if you're honest with yourself, as I have to be, we've all felt the desire to silence Jesus from time to time, haven't we? And we'd love to live our lives without the rule of any king over us. Yet how much more of an offence is it to resist the Messiah, one who is so much greater than Saul? How much uh, more terrible is it to have that desire in our hearts to kill him The one who has tasted death and risen again. The one who has all power. The one who is truly the superhuman. Now, Perhaps even now there are some in the room who are resisting the call to follow Jesus. Because they do not want a Messiah. They don't want a king over them. Well friends, let me make it very, very clear. Make no mistake about this. Jesus is king. He is the Lord's anointed, whether we like it or not. And not just over Israel, but over the whole world. And there is a terrible justice coming against those who abuse the one who holds the office. Now Please consider turning to Jesus. Let him be your king. Submit to his rule today. But secondly, we have David's example, don't we, of celebrating the benefits of the king. Now, we've seen that David holds Saul in the highest possible regard because he is the Messiah. But I think what's striking about Uh, about this is that David doesn't dwell on whether Saul was a good man. He doesn't dwell on uh, whether Saul was the best possible Messiah because he wasn't. We know that. Uh, Saul certainly had flaws and and as I said his his relationship with God is never mentioned in this passage. He isn't a godly man. But there are things that he did as God's anointed king. He won many battles. He fought and, and pushed out the borders of Israel and gave them security which after all is the job of a king David doesn't just mourn the loss of the king he mourns the loss of the blessings the king brings of the prosperity, of the peace of the security of the people of course our, our Messiah isn't gone he's not dead and the blessings are not gone his blessings endure. His is an eternal kingdom where we will reign forever with him. But I wonder whether we're very good at stopping and counting the blessings of singing joyfully of what it is to be the Messiah's people, protected, secure borders, and eternal prosperity offered to us. I was visiting a guy in hospital this week who is bedbound husband for a number of years. He just found out this week he's got MRSA in his bloodstream and he's on very strong antibiotics, Uh, This man has never lost heart. He rejoices in the sovereignty of God. He knows there are blessings to be found, even in his current situation. And he's gathered people around his bed, his his doctors and and the other patients on his ward, and told them the gospel this week. uh, Because that's the only thing he can do. Because he trusts in the Messiah, you see. He trusts that the blessings of the Messiah will come to him in the end. We have the, uh, the, the negative example of the Malachi, the positive example of David. And then we have, thirdly, we have Jonathan, who sacrificed everything for the Messiah. I haven't made much of this yet, but actually, if you look through the passage, Jonathan is just as prominent as Saul is. And especially in the lament, which uh, you, you might say, well, of course he's the heir. To lose the king and the heir on the same day. Well, that's double tragedy. We shouldn't expect Saul to be mentioned and David and Jonathan to be mentioned next to him. But actually, notice, notice what David calls the song, verse 18, he ordered the people of Judah to be taught this lament of the bow. And lots of people in the commentaries, they argue what on earth that means and that oftentimes in the translation they just leave the word bow out, because they can't really make any sense of it. But I think it's fairly obvious, isn't it? Verse 22 For the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. See, David calls this a lament of the bow because he's subtly saying, well, I'm singing a song about Saul, but really... It's a song about Jonathan. See, the, the nation must learn to mourn the loss of Saul. He is their king after all. But it's the loss of Jonathan that David is most personally feeling. Notice verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. You think, that rings a bell. Verse 19. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. Gazelle being a, an image for Glory. His opening line is about the death of Jonathan on the heights of Gilboa. And so he, he goes on. Verse 26, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Which, of course, leads lots of modern commentators to think that they must have had some sort of homosexual relationship. But that's not what's going on here at all. We've just lost the, the ancient sense that you could have really deep friendships, haven't we, as a culture? The idea that your, deep, your closest relationship is that of your friendship. Plainly, he says, we're brothers, not lovers. But notice the context here. Again, we, we dip back into to 1 Samuel. Jonathan is the man with everything to lose. Jonathan is the heir of the kingdom. But he knows that David is God's Messiah. He knows that David is the anointed one. And so he submits himself to David. He, he binds himself with a, with a covenant to him. He says, you know, I'll, I'll take my life in my hands with my father. I should be uh, with Saul, but I'm with David because he's the true, uh, the true anointed. He takes off his garments and says, these are the royal garments. They belong to you now, David. It's as if he takes his crown off his head and gives it to his friend and says, I'm your man because you're my Messiah. And so David celebrates the steadfast commitment of Jonathan to his friend David. And as David celebrates Jonathan, he reminds us what it is to be committed to the Messiah. What true friendship with the Messiah looks like. And so the question for us, I think, as we we read this lament is, will we do as Jonathan does? Will we take off our crowns, whatever that means, our, our rights, our privileges, our positions of authority, the places where we act as if we're the heir? Maybe... Just as independent rulers of our own lives, we, we allow, allow nobody to have authority over us in our domain. Perhaps as parents, perhaps as, as bosses, in those places where we act as though we're king. Will we take off our crowns and will we give them to Jesus, the true Messiah, as Jonathan gave his to David? Will we bind ourselves to Jesus' covenant? Will we be as committed to him in every area of life? Will we take our lives in our hands for the sake of our Messiah, as Jonathan did? Even when it's hard, even when the souls who reign over us, the kings who have authority over us, hate that we're on Jesus' side. Will we still stand with Jesus? Even if it costs us our kingdom here on earth. Because we know that we're going to to inherit a kingdom with Jesus in glory. Let's pray. Our loving Messiah, Jesus Christ, we praise you that you not only died but rose again and will never be destroyed. We praise you that the uh, privileges of your kingdom are such that uh, we can look forward to a day when secure borders and Uh, eternal uh, glory await us where true riches are to be found and where we never have to lament the death of our king because he rules forever I pray for all of us here that we would uh, take off our crowns, whatever those areas of our lives are whatever it is that we're holding back from you that we would give them back that we would allow you to be king to guide our uh, decisions, to guide our behaviours that we would uh, hear your call, that like Jonathan, we would delight to uh, hand over uh, the rule of every part of our lives to our Messiah, that we would honour you as we should and not uh, treat you with the contempt that the Amalekites showed to Saul. Give us uh, an awareness of our own failings in this area and cause us to be renewed in the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. For his name's sake. Amen. Now, uh, please take up your service We're going to move uh, straight from here into uh, the Lord's Supper. Let's see if I can pause this. I've no idea how to turn it on. Um, Andy, could you run up to Sarah? Otherwise, we're going to end up recording another half hour of material, which probably nobody wants on the talk. Notice at verse 4 these are again. Why weren't you afraid to lift up your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And the truth is. We've all done that I think, in our hearts this week. This month. We've all pushed back Jesus. We've all kind of wished he was dead.